All right, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our series uh, as we work our way through the book of Zechariah. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 5. That's our text for today as we keep looking at Zechariah's night visions. Our text is Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, and I will read that for us here as we get started. Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And I returned, and I lifted up my eyes, and I saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What are you looking at? And I said, I am looking at a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its height is 10 cubits. And he said to me, This is the curse which is going out over the face of all the earth. For every thief, according to one side, will be purged, and everyone who swears, according to the other side, will be purged. I have sent it, declares Yahweh of hosts, and it is entering into the house of the thief and into the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it will lodge in the midst of his house and will consume his wood and his stone. Let's pray quick as we get into this uh, short bit of text this morning. Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would accomplish what you want to do through it this morning. Help us to understand it, open our eyes to see what you have to explain to us in your instruction here, we pray in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, just to set the context really briefly here, you may remember from last week that we're continuing to look at the night visions in the book of Zechariah. There's a lot of fantastical imagery that we see, as we've already seen, and as we're seeing here today with this image of the flying scroll. Uh, the image that we saw last week, uh, the vision of the lampstand, is really important for understanding the context of the vision that we're looking at now. You remember that we talked about last week the lampstand represented the temple, and the two olive trees on the sides of the lampstand represented Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two chief figures responsible, humanly speaking, for getting the temple up and running again and resuming after the Babylonian exile. Because you remember, our big lesson that we learned from the vision of the lampstand is that God is sovereign and he will accomplish what he wants to do, but he often uses human agents to do it, like Joshua and Zerubbabel, the builder and the priest. And it's in the context of this re-establishing of the worship of the true God that we see here an emphasis in chapter 5 on the re-establishing of the law of God in the life of his people. And that's really important because what we see here is the law of God going out and convicting people of sin and destroying lawbreakers. And so let's look at what uh, we have to see here in these first couple verses of, of Zechariah 5. There's not a lot of text here, but man, there's a lot of good theology going on. So what Zechariah sees is exactly what is described in verse 1, a flying scroll. Now that is a very interesting image. When I think of a flying scroll, you know, I think of that old parchment rolled up and kind of floating in the air. And maybe that's kind of something like what Zechariah saw. However, it's very clear that this is not an ordinary scroll. 
And not simply because it's flying, but because Zechariah actually gives clear dimensions about the scroll. How big is this scroll? And he records that it is 20 cubits long and, 20, and uh, 10 cubits high. All right, now that is uh, a significantly big scroll. You may not know off the top of your head what a cubit is, but generally speaking, when um, the ancient people would measure things, they'd measure things from the tip of their hand to their elbow. And that was a cubit. So if you look at your arm right now, you'd see that's probably, you know, a, you know, a foot and a half, maybe two feet. I don't know. It depends on how long your arms are. Some, maybe even just a foot. I don't know. But um, uh, generally speaking, scholars, when they convert the 20 cubits and 10 cubits into our modern measurements, what we find out is that this scroll would measure today about 30 feet long and 15 feet high. Okay, so we are not talking about a piece of copy machine paper. All right, we're not even talking about a big piece of paper that you'd hang on the wall. We're talking like a billboard size scroll going on here. This is a huge billboard that is floating in the air. You just imagine how crazy this would look. It's a scroll the size of a billboard floating in the air. And Zechariah doesn't tell us exactly what's written on this scroll, but we can infer pretty clearly what's written on the scroll as we continue to look here, because the angel says in verse 3 that this scroll is the curse which is going out over all the face of the earth. And what, what the angel tells us is that this scroll is targeting thieves and the scroll is targeting those who take the name of God in vain. You can see that in verses 3 and 4. Uh, verse 4, I have sent it, declares Yahweh of hosts, and it is entering into the house of the thief and into the house of the one who swears falsely by my name, and it will lodge there for the night in his house and it will consume him, his wood, and his stone. So this scroll has been sent by God on a mission, and it is hunting down people who take the name of God in vain and thieves. And so it's pretty clear that in some sense, the law of God appears to be written on this scroll. This scroll is basically representative of the law of God going out and hunting down and destroying lawbreakers. Now, this is a strong law passage, isn't it? A, a very strong image that we see here of the law. Now, one of the things that I was sort of thinking about as I was studying this text in preparation for today is I was wondering, why is it that the law here, the scroll, is being sent out to hunt thieves and those who take the name of God in vain? Why is it that it's only hunting down specifically those two commandments? Why is it not going after all the commandments, you know, breakers? You know? Why is it that you know, the, the scroll isn't hunting down adulterers or liars or, or something along those lines? Why is it these two commandments specifically? And the more I thought about it, the more I began to see, hey, wait a minute, actually, this scroll is hunting down lawbreakers of all ten commandments, not just two. And the reason why I say that is because you may remember from our Ten Commandments series that we did this past summer. And when I was teaching on the commandments, I made the point, and it's not just me who made the point, plenty of people have made this point, 
But I made the point that the Ten Commandments are thoroughly and logically interconnected. You almost could infer all nine commandments out of one commandment. They are so close together logically and consistently. And Jesus himself, uh, when he summarizes the commandments, summarizes them as having two sections. One section being the worship of God, how we are to treat God, love the Lord your God, and the second section being how to treat our neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what Jesus does is he divides the Ten Commandments into two sections. The first four commandments being the ones that deal with our worship of God and how we treat him. And then the last six commandments being how we treat our neighbor in various different capacities. And what we actually see, and I made this point back in our Ten Commandments series. You may remember it, you may not. But what we actually see is that the commandment about taking the name of God in vain is actually a kind of summary of the first four commandments. And then the commandment about stealing is a kind of summary or uh, logical principle for the last six commandments. And I think this is really cool. Let me explain to you what I'm saying here, and I think it'll help us understand this passage a little bit more. Let's look at the first commandment for a second. You shall have no other gods before me. What happens if we have other gods before Yahweh, before the true God? Let's say we have, you know, Zeus or Baal or someone. And we say, all right, Baal is going to be my God before Yahweh. He's going to be higher than Yahweh. Well, what have I just done? What I have done is I have taken a false god, elevated that false God's name above the name of the true God, and therefore I have desecrated the name of God. That's a violation of taking God's name in vain. Because remember, taking God's name in vain has so much more in view than simply, you know, vulgar profanity that we hear today. When we say you shall not take the name of God in vain, we do not mean simply that you shouldn't use profanity. Now, what we're, what we're saying is much more than that. We shouldn't take oaths in God's name and then fail to, to hold up our end of the deal or break our word. But most importantly, and just more broadly speaking, taking the name of God in vain simply means to make God's name common, to de-holyize it, to make it unholy, to make it common, to make it vulgar and profane. And so there's a whole lot of things that fall under the category of taking God's name in vain. You can take a look at the Westminster Larger Catechism if you want to see a large list of those kinds of things. I commend uh, that catechism to you for that reason. But if you look at the first commandment, if we, take, if we take other gods, false gods or whatever, and we elevate them above the true God, we have desecrated the name of God. Because Yahweh is the highest Yahweh is the best. Yahweh is the only. And so any removal of his status as the only best and highest God is going to desecrate his name. uh, Think about the second commandment. Uh, You shall not make a graven image. Worshiping God or other gods using images desecrates God's name also. 
because images do injustice to God's infinity and transcendence. This is one of the reasons why God commands this. He's, he doesn't just have in view worshiping false gods or false images or you know statues of Baal or those kinds of things, but what God has in view is that we are not to create images of him for the purpose of worship. We do not create an image of of a statue of Jesus and bow down to it and offer prayers to it and light candles to it. That's an explicit violation of this command. Why? Because the infinite God cannot be represented in a physical image. The invisible God cannot be visible simply to aid us in our worship. That is to violate his greatness and therefore desecrate his name as the infinite, almighty, invisible God. And that's why we don't do that. Because we violate his name. Fourthly, uh, the, I mean, fourth commandment, how do we desecrate the name of God in that? Well, in the fourth commandment, when we claim to serve God but fail to observe his day of worship, we desecrate the name of God both in ourselves and in the watching world. In our own day, uh, I think this is definitely true for the most part in evangelicalism. Today, the most important aspect of our Christian religion is this idea of the personal relationship with Jesus. And I don't want to minimize that. That's certainly important. We definitely uh, see that as important. It's an amazing reality that Scripture teaches that we get to have a relationship with Christ. That's absolutely true. But in the ancient world, a personal relationship with God was not really the thing that they focused on. In the ancient world, both in, in the Judaistic religion as well as in uh, religions in general throughout the world, the center point of religion was worship. And if you did not worship God correctly, regardless of what religion you're talking about, if you did not worship God correctly, then you were in serious error. You were in fundamental, central error to your religion. You must worship God correctly. And this is something we see in the Old Testament. God is passionate, and in the New Testament too, but God is passionate about his worship. He has prescribed boundaries for his worship, a way that we ought to regulate it. We don't get to worship God in whatever way we jolly well feel like worshiping him. We don't get to do whatever we feel like doing. We don't get to incorporate into the worship service anything we think should be there. God has prescribed how we ought to worship him. That is central to true religion. And one of the things we see in the Ten Commandments is God prescribes a day of worship. And especially for the ancient world, if the Israelites failed to worship God in the way he commanded, they would be spit upon even by Gentiles because they were failing to worship God and therefore desecrating his name. And so, in short, if we fail to follow the fourth commandment, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What we actually end up doing is we desecrate the name of God in our own minds by failing to worship him as we ought, and we desecrate him in the minds of the watching world. And so we need to think very carefully about 
these things. But Sabbath discussions are for another day, of course. We're not going to deal with that today. All right, so that's that. My, my thesis there basically is that the commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, as it's represented here in Zechariah 5, is a kind of summary of that first section of the commandments, of how we deal with God. And then... The commandment about stealing, which we also see in Zechariah 5, I think is representative of the last six commandments that deal with how we treat our neighbor. For example, fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. If we break that commandment, what are we doing? We are stealing honor from our authorities. How about the sixth commandment? If we commit murder, what are we doing? We are stealing life from another human being. We're taking what's not ours. Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. What do we do if we break that commandment? We are stealing someone else's spouse. Ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. What do we do if we break that one? We're stealing the truth. And finally, the tenth commandment, if we break that, you shall not covet we are stealing something in our minds. And if you want uh, to review those commandments and everything that, that uh, we taught, I taught on those commandments uh, two weeks each from back last summer, and you can find those online, uh, all of those Sunday school sessions where we delve into these ideas in a much deeper sense. But I hope you get the idea here. You get the picture. All the commandments that deal with with the love of our neighbor, can be summed up and thou shalt not steal. And so it's for that reason that I think in Zechariah 5 here, we see that the scroll, this flying scroll, searching out lawbreakers is not just looking for thieves and not just looking for people who take the name of God in vain, but is really for looking for people who break all ten of God's commandments. It's searching for lawbreakers. And what is this scroll doing? It's searching for lawbreakers and it is being sent by Yahweh into the houses of the lawbreakers. God's law is infiltrating the houses of sinners and it sees the secret sins committed in the back rooms and the dark corners that no one else sees. And as it sees those sins, what happens? The law of God consumes the lawbreakers. It consumes them. Along with the wood and the stone. This is kind of sobering, honestly. But you see what's happening here, going back to what we talked about at the beginning today. You remember, set in the context... In chapter 4 of Zechariah, the temple is being rebuilt and worship of the true God is being reinstituted. What happens when God wants to establish worship of himself in the land? Well, what has to happen is the people need to get their act together. They need to live holy lives. They need to be sanctified. The law of God needs to hunt them down. And this is true of us today in a certain sense, isn't it? We, we can't worship God 
when we are polluted with sin. This is kind of, you know, one of the reasons why Paul, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, says, do not come unworthily. Examine yourselves. Now, he's not saying that you know, if you're a sinner, you can't come. But what he's saying is if you are rolling around in your sin, if you are reveling in it, if you are enjoying it, if you are unrepentant, well, that's when you can't come. You can't come when you don't have your act together. Come to worship when you can't. You can't come to worship when you don't have your act together in the sense of when you have unrepentant sin that you are stubbornly refusing to confess before God. This is one of the reasons why prayer is so difficult because it's awfully hard to pray when you know that you have unconfessed sin that you're not dealing with. It affects our relationship with God and affects our worship. And so we need to be people who deal with our sin. We need to be people who recognize that the law of God is a legit thing coming after us. But let us always, when we think about this, and maybe you're feeling the pressure here, let me sort of relieve that pressure for a second and say, remember, when the law of God is coming after us as believers, it's very different than when it's coming after people who are unbelievers. Because you see, when the law of God comes after unbelievers... It is doing so to condemn and destroy and to damn. It's very serious business and very sobering. When the law of God comes after unbelievers, it is there to condemn and destroy and damn. But when the law of God comes after us as believers, right, it's very different. It's not coming against us to condemn us. There is now no condemnation for those who are under Jesus Christ. The law is not coming to condemn us, but you know what the law is coming to do is it is coming to sanctify us as believers. It's coming to make us more like Christ. We should welcome the law coming into our houses and dealing with us and finding all of the secret sins. Not because it's going to damn us, but because it is going to make us more like Christ. As believers, the law is a rule of life, showing us how we ought to live and how we ought to please our God who has already saved us by the work of Christ and not by our work. The law is, for the Christian, a delight. At least it should be. And we should strive for that. King David in the Psalms frequently refers to the law of God as his delight. And we should be aiming for that. The law is a rule of life for us as believers. And it is something that we should strive to obey because we want to be like Christ and because we love him and we love his word. And remember, it is only as a result of Christ's finished work on the cross that we can delight in the law. Because if it weren't for Christ's finished work on the cross, the law would not be coming to sanctify us, but rather the law would be coming to condemn and destroy us. And so I thank our God that the law is something that can be good for us. But it is only good for us, and it can only be our delight if we focus on the gospel and we focus on Christ's complete and finished work. Let's close in prayer here this morning.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Zechariah. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be drawn to yourself, Lord. That we would see our inability to fulfill the law at every corner. But Lord, that we would also see that through you we can do all things and that we need to strive. We need to strive for our sanctification, Lord. Lord, help us to delight in your law. Help us to love it. But always, Lord, in every way, draw us to the gospel and draw us to yourself that we might see that you completed all of everything that we needed to do for our salvation. And Lord, help us in joyful response to the salvation that you have freely offered us to obey you and to love you and to serve you in this life and in the next. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.